Okay, welcome to this episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Today, we're diving into the truly terrifying world of tried and true human experiments. But before we jump into these murky waters, let's just review a few housekeeping items. The Etsy sale is still live and will be throughout the holidays, so go check out our super tiny small collection of handcrafted wrapped crystal jewelry. Um, And there is one witchy divination kit left. Um, Thank you so much, Amy, for your purchase. Use the code STAYSTRANGE, no spaces, at checkout and you'll get 30% off of your entire order. And I cover shipping, so that's one less thing you have to worry about. I'm currently, as I'm writing this episode out, finishing up a cool new room set that I'm actually fucking stoked about. Um, I loved how they turned out. And I'll be adding those as well as other Rune and Oem sets to the Etsy soon, um, if they're not out already out by the time this episode airs. <laughs> I don't know, I've I've been looking into just merging a storefront with my website instead of having Etsy, but we'll see. Weighing the pros and cons right meow, you know. Anywho, I'm excited to get out into the field in the upcoming weeks and explore the Ocala National Forest and all of its spooky shit in preparation for a collaboration with Unearthing Paranormalcy. Ooh. So stay tuned for info on that, and of course, more episodes are in the works as well, including some stuff on dystopian societies, a cryptid coast-to-coast feature, and a ghouls, goblins, and specters series introduction. You guys are probably sick of me introducing little series. I know this podcast just started. (laughs) Um, Also... Sam will be visiting again, so maybe we'll sneak in some special Sam episode. How'd you like that alliteration? Yay! But I hope you all like all of the things. Let's get into this 14th installment now and dive into some strange and more obscure human experiments. I tried to stay away from the more well-known experiments like the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Experiment... But honestly, who knows? There may be a second part to this episode. Actually, I'm now that I have completely written it out, there's definitely going to be a part two because there are like 10 experiments that I just couldn't fit in this episode for the sake of time and being able to get an episode out for you guys this week. Oh, we'll chew over, in this episode at least, Medical experiments, torture, government goons, irradiated ball sacks, and more. Oh yeah, content warning. Um, I'm not necessarily rating these either by any means, but we will start off with what I consider to be the more mild experiments and wade our way toward the more disturbing ones. So prepare yourselves and your buttholes now while you still have time. All right. So number one, Operation Dropkick. Over the course of several months during 1956, the U.S. Army's Chemical Corps conducted, you guessed it, experiments on unsuspecting victims in the South. The towns of Savannah, Georgia and Avon Park, Florida were the designated targets for what was known as Operation Dropkick. 
Now, I grew up in Florida, and I remember being in or just out of high school, I think, when everyone got really scared over the outbreaks of the infected mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus or disease, whichever it is, virus or disease. Now, imagine this shit happening without anyone knowing that mosquitoes were the cause. And then imagine that your own government has dropped hundreds of thousands of these mosquitoes in your town to test the spread. Well, this is kind of what happened with Operation Dropkick. Now, I'm going to link a couple of documents relating to this experiment on the source list, of course, as well under as well as under the reading recommendations for the pleasure of your eyeballs. Now, the first one we'll review briefly is titled Summary of Major Events and Problems, United States Army Corps, Fiscal Year 1959. This document, now declassified, covered projects that were aimed to achieve a number of goals and resolve questions regarding biological and chemical warfare. It concludes, overall, that... Chemical warfare in its present state of development can inflict devastating casualties on unprotected personnel, both military and civilian. Biological warfare, although primarily concerned with incapacitating rather than lethal lethal effects, can also present serious problems with respect to both types of personnel. The report recommended that the Security Secretary of Defense urge the services to develop and establish requirements for chemical and biological warfare weapons systems and to take steps to provide an appreciably increased effect on chemical and biological warfare research, particularly with respect to a. non-lethal agents, b. agents not protected against by mask, and c. effective defensive measures. The report also urged the development of parallel programs for R&D, wargaming, and combat development field trials, and for securing public acceptance and support for chemical and biological warfare. Further ahead, it gets into detail about Operation Dropkick and the methods conducted, conclusions met, etc. Listen to this. Yellow Fever. C. In 1953, the Biological Warfare Laboratories at Fort Detrick established a program to study the use of anthropods for spreading anti-personnel BW agents. The advantages of anthropods as BW carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. One of the insects picked for the study was the Aedes aegypti mosquito, the carrier of yellow fever virus. This species is widely distributed between latitudes 40 degrees north and 40 degrees south. In the United States, it occurs as far north as Norfolk, Virginia, but cannot survive the winters north of this latitude. The mosquito favors human habitations as breeding places. The female mosquito sucks blood from animals or humans, but seems to prefer humans. It takes its first meal two days after emerging from the larval stage and seeks blood again at intervals of about three days. While probing for blood, the mosquito transmits yellow fever virus to the unknowing victim. Yellow fever is a highly dangerous disease. A person begins to show symptoms of the fever from 2 to 10 days, the average is 3 days, after he has been bitten by the mosquito. The fever appears suddenly causing headache, high temperatures, rigor, vomiting, and even prostration. If the disease is fatal, death usually comes on the 6th or 7th day. If the patient recovers, he is weak for a period from of from two weeks to two months. There is no known therapy for yellow fever other than symptomatic and in several cases, 
cases, the patient has a poor chance of recovering. Of the clinical cases since 1900, one-third of the patients have died. Every few years, an epidemic occurs somewhere in the world, primarily in Africa and the Americas, occasionally in Europe. Yellow fever has never occurred in some areas, including Asia, and therefore it is quite probable that the population of the USSR would be quite susceptible to the disease. La 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 la. If military attack were made with Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, it would be quite difficult to detect the fact, particularly if this type of mosquito ordinarily lived in the area. While there is a possibility that a trained entomologist might realize that an attack had taken place, it would be unlikely. And even if an attack were suspected, it could not be confirmed until symptoms of the disease broke out, which would take two or more days. There is a yellow fever vaccine that has proven to be an effective prophylactic, but it would be impossible for a nation such as the USSR to quickly undertake a mass immunization program to protect millions of people. The difficulties that an enemy would face in detecting infected mosquitoes and protecting their population would make the Aedes aegypti yellow fever combination an extremely effective BW agent. The Chemical Corps tested the practicality of employing Aedes aegypti mosquitoes to carry a BW agent in several ways. In April through November of 1956, the Corps ran trials in Savannah, Georgia by releasing uninfected female mosquitoes in a residential area and then, with cooperation of people in the neighborhood, <clears throat> estimating how many mosquitoes entered houses and bit people. Also in 1956, the Corps released 600,000 uninfected mosquitoes from a plane at Avon Park Bombing Range, Florida. Within a day, the mosquitoes had spread a distance of between 1 and 2 miles and had bitten many people. In 1958, further tests at Avon Park Air Force Base, Florida, showed that mosquitoes could easily be disseminated from helicopters, would spread more than a mile in each direction, and would enter all types of buildings. <laughs> These tests showed that mosquitoes could be spread over areas of several square miles by means of devices dropped from planes or set up on the ground. And while these tests were made with uninfected mosquitoes, it is, fairly, it is a fairly safe assumption that infected mosquitoes could be spread equally well. In the second document, titled An Evaluation of Entomological Warfare as a Potential Danger to the United States and European NATO Nations, uh, this one's also a U.S. Army document, and this one goes into the different biological warfare experiments conducted by the military and even begins by breaking down a cost comparison between the development or the deployment, sorry, of an aerosol attack with one of infected mosquitoes. Turns out, it's roughly eight grand cheaper to unleash diseased mosquitoes than it is to spray a bunch of people. Probably also a little more effective. So, the 10-page read is a light one, and of course I'll have it linked for you, and it is a bit redacted, so it's not even really 10 pages worth of content. What you can gather, however, is some interesting information recorded by the Army on chemical and biological weapons testing in America and elsewhere. Here is a look at their guess on the figures of affected peoples. It is estimated that between 50 and 90% of a non-immune population bitten by infected yellow fever mosquitoes will become infected and 30 to 40% of the victims will die. Thus, over 50% of the battalion would likely become incapacitated and a large number would die. 
While information specific to Operation Dropkick seems to be redacted from the file almost completely, it does briefly mention Operations Big Itch, Big Buzz, and Mayday as well. Now, there are some news articles I found regarding the townsfolk in Avon Park that suggest there were cases of yellow fever or some unknown sickness affecting several people, mostly African-American it turns out, because um, that was the population of the town. And um, those articles will be with the other reading materials in case you are interested as well. The remaining experiments I have on the list are increasingly more fucked up, so again, get your butthole ready. Or your balls, I should say. You'll want to protect your balls, if you have them, while we delve into this next human horror story. Beginning in 1963, the AEC, or Atomic Energy Commission, funded and developed a series of experiments to test the effects of radiation exposure on male fertility. The AEC decided to use human subjects for the tests, and volunteers were thus drafted from inmates at the Oregon State Prison. Dr. Carl Heller of the Pacific Northwest Research Facility Foundation sorry, was the lead investigator of the experiment, though soon into the whole thing he had a stroke and was replaced by his senior research assistant, Mavis J. Rowley. She oversaw the remainder of the experiment and tests on the inmates and the collection of the data from such tests. In 1976, the Office of Public Affairs typed up a query response to this experiment, and I read it for this episode. Here's the document's very brief description of the whole shebang. In the Oregon study, the prisoner volunteers were given x-ray exposures to the testes in doses ranging from 8 to 600 rads in order to obtain data on specific male sterility caused by radiation. 61 prisoners received a single, single exposure, 5 received 2 exposures, and 1 received 3 exposures. To volunteer and be considered, prisoners were required to be under life sentence. Each inmate agreed to have a vasectomy at the completion of his part of the project. Consent of the prisoner's wife was obtained for this procedure. All prisoners involved eventually received a vasectomy. Ages of the irradiated prisoners ranged from 25 to 52. The consent procedure involved full explanation of the short and long-term effects, usually in the presence of a chaplain. All protects all participants were required to have a preliminary psychological examination and to sign notices of informed consent. It was made clear to each subject that he could withdraw from the experiment at any time. Oregon wasn't the only state to perform these experiments. In fact, Washington state was also interested in the effects of radiation on fertility levels, among other things, and sought out inmates for their, theirs was more like space related, I guess, and sought out inmates for their experiment as well in the early 70s. The Department of Energy has since archived a series of documents and reviews, um, and reviews regarding human radiation experiments conducted throughout modern history, and this archived website is where I found a more in-depth look at what might have really taken place at the Oregon and Washington prisons. The website contained footnotes to their article on the prison experiments, and this is where I found the abstract to the Oregon State Prison Experiment conducted by Dr. Heller and Mavis Rowley. The abstract lists the objectives to the experiment as follows. 
to determine the nature of the cytological changes, both somatic and germ- germinal, in- oh my God. induced by acute radiation. To determine the dosage required to produce these changes, as well as the dose to induce permanent damage to spermatogenic cells. To determine recovery time. To determine radiation-produced alteration of testicular parameters, such as total, oh boy, gonadoptrin, interstitial cell hormone excretion, estrogen excretion, and androgen excretion. The Department of Energy article describes the methods used to obtain the data or how the experiment um, was, or the how of the experiment, basically, so how it was performed. Apparently, Dr. Heller created a machine that would give two doses from either side to the subject's testicles. Then, well, the subject lay face down with his scrotum in a small plastic box filled with warm water to encourage the testes to descend. On either side of the box were a matched set of x-ray tubes. The alignment of the x-ray beams could be checked through a system of peepholes and mirrors. Subjects were required to agree to be vasectomized because of a perceived small risk of chromosomal damage that could lead to their fathering of genetically damaged children. In 1976, some of the prisoners decided to file lawsuits against Dr. Heller and others associated with the experiments, citing lack of supervision and no informed consent given. Remember that response to query file from a few minutes ago that I literally just shared? Well, well, well. Dr. Heller even admits during his own deposition after the lawsuits were filed that he vaguely recalled mentioning adverse health effects, short and long term, to the inmate subjects because he didn't want to frighten them. The short-term effects of the experiment could have meant that the men suffered from burns, blisters, radiation rashes, not to mention bleeding or inflammation from the biopsies performed to collect the data, you know. The long-term effects included, of course, the possibility of tumors, permanent sterility, and cancer. Though some inmates do remember being told about the skin burns and other things that could occur during and after the experiment, it doesn't seem like many of them took the threat of cancer seriously. See why I said protect your balls? Okay, now, people with balls can relax, and people with ovaries, you might want to gear up now before we start discussing a couple of different experiments performed on women that I thought were kind of fucked up, too. In the mid-1800s, an American surgeon by the name of Dr. J. Marion Sims started making waves in his community when he started operating on women in order to remove vesicovaginal fistulas. These women were slave women, however, and they did not give consent to be operated or experimented on. Their masters did. Sims performed dozens of operations on of unconsenting slave women out of a makeshift hospital set up in his backyard. He had no experience in gynecological matters and even told patients that requested such services just that. That is, until he was summoned to attend to a woman who had fallen from a horse and sustained extreme pelvic pain. This woman's vagina was his gateway to a dedication to repair vesicovaginal fistulas in women. I hope I'm saying that correctly. 
It's just really unfortunate that he decided it would be okay to use slave women as test subjects in his medical experiments. Fucker. According to a report from the Journal of Medical Ethics, Sims practiced on dozens of slave women without their consent and without the use of anesthesia or other pain-reducing elements. The report, written by Dorinda Ojanuga, is titled The Medical Ethics of the Father of Gynecology, Dr. J. Marion Sims. Here's a description of the first surgery he performed and thus also his first victim. Dr. Sims was so positive that he was on the verge of making an astounding medical discovery that he invited local doctors to witness his first operation and what he thought would be a historical event. He performed his first operation on a slave woman named Lucy. Lucy was operated on without anesthetics as Sims was unaware of the advances which had been made in this area of medicine. The surgery lasted for an hour and Lucy endured excruciating pain while positioned on her hands and knees. She must have felt extreme humiliation as 12 doctors observed the operation. Unfortunately, the operation failed as two little openings in the line of union across the vagina remained, although the larger fistula had been repaired. Lucy nearly lost her life due to the experimental use by Sims of a sponge to drain the urine away from the bladder as she became extremely ill with fever resulting from blood poisoning. In recounting the episode in his autobiography, Sims says, I thought she was going to die. It took Lucy two or three months to recover entirely from the effects of the operation. Despite Lucy's close call with death, Dr. Sims continued with his experiments. He operated on Anarka, another slave slave woman, next. Her condition improved considerably after the surgery, but a small fistula remained and she continued to leak urine. Anarka was to endure 13 total surgeries without anesthesia before Sims was satisfied with the results of his operations on her specifically. Afterwards, all of the other slave women were reported to be healed and sent back to their masters as well so they could continue working. The article also mentioned that white women did come to Sims for the surgery after learning about his success with slave women. However, none of the white women could endure the operation, even a single operation, without the aid of anesthesia due to the pain. In his autobiography, which I only sought to find for a blip of a moment, Sims' feelings toward his patients are evident. He had this to say, which kind of sums it all up. I made this proposition to the owners of the Negroes. If you will give me Anarka and Betsy for experiment, I agree to perform no experiment or operation on either of them to endanger their lives and will not charge a cent for keeping them, but you must pay their taxes and clothe them. He then remarked, I got three or four more to experiment on, and there was never a time that I could not at any day have had a subject for operation, but my operations all failed. This went on, not for one year, but for two and three, and even four years. Those poor women. Let's turn away from this rude ass and on to another experiment aimed at ovary carriers. During the Second World War, Tennessee's Vanderbilt University decided to conduct experiments on mostly unknowing pregnant females. 
Though numbers vary depending on what source you're looking at, anywhere between 750 and 800, lower class pregnant women were giving irradiated iron supplements to take, and many of these women did not know what they were taking or that it was potentially harmful. The study initially wanted to trace the path and spread of the iron, Fe59, and the absorption rates by the mother and the fetus. It is not clear whether or not the researchers suspected or knew that there were potentially fatal long-term effects of allowing the woman to ingest the radioactive iron at that time. One woman later recalled in her testimony of the experiments that she was offered a cocktail by the researchers but was not informed of its cont contents. I don't remember what it was and I was not told what it was, she said. In a follow-up study conducted by Vanderbilt in 1963 to 1964, it was confirmed by researchers that there were higher rates of malignancies within offspring of women of the experiment than of other groups. Four such cases were identified in which the children born to mothers exposed to FE59 were diagnosed with various forms of cancer, acute lymphatic leukemia, synovial sarcoma, lymphosarcoma, and primary liver carcinoma. This last one was apparently blown off as a familial thing, though it was later tied to the experiment. Of the four cases, three resulted in death. Yes, at least three children have died as a result of their mothers unknowingly ingesting radioactive iron in the 1940s. In 1969, the American Journal of Epidemiology published an article which discusses the three cases that led to the death of the children, as well as a review of the experiment as a whole, and the article is titled, Long-Term Effects of Radioactive Iron Administered During Human Pregnancy. As with everything else, I will link it for you guys in the reading material. Alright, this next case study does involve children and babies, so please listen at your discretion. Now, some of you might say, and I understand, that during the 50s and 60s, doctors all over were performing medical experiments on patients without their consent. It was just that time. Um, Loretta Bender was just another one of these doctors, and so I'm not trying to paint her to be a specific monster or anything. Um, although I would disagree with drugging up and shocking children. No, I don't know. Dr. Loretta Bender was a leader in her field of research on mental disorders at the time, and she helped develop the Bender-Gestalt test and also helped to introduce art therapies to institutionalized children. She also administered LSD to what she and others deemed to be disturbed children, as well as children that suffered from what she called autistic schizophrenia. The experiments that really help her stand out here in the episode are her electric shock treatments she administered for her own research, as well as the use of a number of different drugs on the children as parts of experiments for drug companies. That's right. She experimented on kids. For drug companies. Dr. Bender isn't the only one under fire here, as of course most of the rest of the staff did participate in the trials, experiments, and treatment of the children as well. Different times, some will say, but to me it doesn't justify the mistreatment of humans by other humans, especially the mistreatment of children. Anyway, 
Uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, Dr. Bender and her colleagues performed a multitude of medical experiments on their patients at Bellevue Hospital and the Creedmoor State Hospital, both located in New York. These experiments involved the testing of different drugs and their effects on their institutionalized patients, as well as other forms of therapy, including electric shock. Throughout her tenure at both hospitals, Dr. Bender administered electric shock to at least 100 children, and some say more, under the age of 13. Her youngest patients to receive electric shock, shock as treatment were toddlers at just three years old. What the fuck could they have done at three to constitute having their brains fried repeatedly? That's just what I want to know. While she claimed these sessions were, for the most part, successful in her reports, she apparently told personal accounts that she was unsatisfied with the results of using electric shock therapy. This source cannot be verified, though, so take it with a grain of salt, if you will. The after-effects were horrible for these children, some of which grew to become violent adults. According to one article I read about the cases, a 1954 scientific study of about 50 of Bender's young electric shock patients conducted by two psychologists found that nearly all were worse off after the therapy and that some had become suicidal after treatment. These treatments, for the most part, were given without the consent of the patient. The parents or guardians were asked for consent, but informed consent was not technically legally required up until the tail end of these studies and experiences. Experiments. It's crazy to me the shit hospitals and institutions could get away with and sometimes still do in the name of medical science. But, you know, thank goodness for the most part they don't allow human experimentation anymore. Um, and also, I guess, the treatment of institutionalized people's has gotten tremendously better, though it, of course, could still use some work. Uh, sorry, I went off on a little tiny tangent there. Anyway, um, here's a look at this second document from the Creedmoor State Hospital regarding their medical experiments and studies. I'll, of course, link this for you. This report is three pages in length and viewable online, and I'm just going to read the majority of it to you right now. So, project title, Evaluation of Physiological Treatment Methods for Disturbed Children. A, Drug Therapy, therapy. B, Electroconvulsive Therapy. Principal Investigator, Gloria Ferretra, MD, Principal Research Scientist, Child Psychiatry. Medical Doctor, sorry. Project Objectives. Physiological methods are used extensively in the children's unit to provide rapid and intensive treatment for our disturbed children. They are utilized not merely for tranquilization or management, but as means of stimulating maturation, organizing behavior, reducing interference with learning and other vital experiences in the child's development, and improving the child's physiological well-being. Studies of these treatment methods are on two broad interrelated levels. One arises out of our general clinical experiences in which a large variety of known and approved psychotherapeutic agents are given as part of a treatment regime. From these experiences, more structured research projects are often formulated to study a drug of particular interest or to compare a known drug with a newer drug. On the other level, new drugs which usually are not yet FDA approved for children or which seem to offer some promise in treatment are studied in a structured program. 
All of the children are available to these studies, subject, of course, to approval by our research committee and informed parental consent. Each member of the total staff of the unit has the opportunity at some time or other to become involved in a research project. Each research project has one or more of the following points to determine. 1. Effectiveness in treatment. 2. Safety and dosage ranges. 3. Side effects or toxicity. 4. Indications including age groups, diagnostic categories, symptom complexes. 5. Comparison studies with other treatment methods or drugs. 6. Follow-up and long-term results. Accomplishments to date. From the beginning of the unit, we have studied and evaluated a large number of medications, see a lot of medications, and the effects of electroconvulsive therapy. We select for evaluation drugs which come to our attention through our reading and clinical experiences. In addition, many of the drug companies present their literature on newer drugs to us with the request that we undertake an evaluation of the medication in certain groups of children. Some of these studies have been published, but a large number have been evaluated and written up as reports for our files, the drug company, research reports, and information for our staff. These includes reports these include reports on several phenothiazines, sparine, prochetazine, compazine, thorazine, stelazine, et al., serax, avintel, haloperidol, resoprene, thilantin, and others. In 1961, we began our extensive work with LSD and UML with autistic children. The UML is like a form of the LSD, I guess. Um, or a LSD substitute. No, primarily because this type of drug affects so many of the functions known to be disordered in these children. For example, perceptual distortions, autonomic instability, extreme withdrawal, disturbed biogenic, I mean metabolism. We soon expanded our research to include other types of disturbed children in the LSD UML program and did a series of studies on autonomic autonomic nervous system responses in children on this type of drug. Several publications describe the results of our work in this area. These may be summarized as indicating that daily doses of LSD or UML proved beneficial in increasing awareness and diminishing anxiety in many of the patients. These drugs tended to normalize autonomic nervous system responses and affected general physiological improvement all without psychotic manifestations or harmful side effects. Yeah, and then it says electroconvulsive therapy is used in a much smaller number of patients, about four to six at any one time, but continues to be a valuable treatment for certain patients, especially the young autistic, the acutely anxious, disturbed child or adolescent, the severely unmanageable psychotic patient, the depressed, pseudoneurotic, withdrawn child. Attempts to understand its effects have been made by projects involving psychological, clinical, and EEG examinations and special, special projective and perceptual testing. A five-year follow-up of patients who had received ECT in the children's unit was reported in 1963 and revealed that approximately one-third remained institutionalized and two-thirds made good to marginal adjustment. Annual Budget Listen, none of these studies has required special funds or expenditures. Drugs are always supplied by the drug company. 
In some cases, the company has supplied disposable needles and syringes when laboratory work was required. Let's move back in time a bit and away from the United States and move on to move on over to 1920s Soviet Union Russia. This may be a more well-known one, I don't know. In 1921, the Soviet powers built a laboratory that would become the infamous Camera or Lab- Laboratory 1, also known as Lab 12, Lab X, or The Cell. This lab was used for decades in the development and use of different effective, untraceable poisons. They wanted to be able to efficiently kill dissidents and enemies without the poisons being traced or detected post-mortem. Many say this laboratory, or laboratories, I think there are two buildings, maybe? I don't know. Um, was absolved, but other sources claim that there have been activity in the lab again within, there has been activity in the lab again within the last 30 years or so. What did these doctors, scientists, researchers use to test these poisons and other methods methods of extermination? Well, mostly gulag prisoners. Okay, full disclosure and armchair investigation side note time. When I was doing my research for this specific one, I came across a newly published book titled Life and Death Rays, Radioactive Poisoning and Radiation Exposure, written by author A.C. Perkins. And when I started reading the book, I literally noticed the same words and phrases in the book that were in a Wikipedia article on this and also in another older book. Um, and I'm talking like verbatim. Okay. So, wow. I'm not trying to call anyone uh, out on plagiarism here, but yikes. So anyway, I initially had an excerpt from that book for you, but I'm just going to give you the information I found from the other two sources that can at least be verified. Camara was the name given to the lab by Grigory Myronovsky in the late 1930s. According to The Perversion of Knowledge, True Stories of Soviet Science by Dr. Vadim J. Berstein, the word Camara in Russian has a sinister meaning, a cell in a prison or a chamber for torture. Sinister this place was according to witness testimony from people on the inside. Prisoners called birdies were victims of the experiments supplied to Myronovsky and his medical assistants, and they would be subjected to a number of horrible poisonous agents in order for the doctor to observe and record the effects. Gulag prisoners, people awaiting execution, political dissidents, and other victims were exposed to digitoxin, curare, cyanide, mustard gas, ricin, and other poisons during their time under the thumb of the lab. They would be given the poisons in their food as medications, injected with them, or simply exposed to them in other ways. Myronovsky used people in varying physical conditions, ages, etc. in order to gain a broader picture of the effects of the poisons, especially so when he and his associates finally developed a drug that met all of their criteria. C2, or carbilamine... Choline chloride. In the book, it states that the victims of this specific drug would weaken physically in appearance before becoming calm and ultimately dying within 15 minutes. Now, I'm sure there are countless horror stories of things that went on behind the walls of this lab, 
though I honestly wouldn't want to speculate for too long a time. Okay, so we started this episode off with a government bombing unknowing citizens with insects, right? Well, we're going to finish off with a government bombing of its citizens, though this time it's not America. Uh, Beginning in the early 1930s, Japan developed a center for the research of biological warfare in Japan-occupied Manchuria, China. It was led by Ishii Shiro, a general who saw the need for a secret biological warfare and weapons, weapons research facility after the enacting of the Geneva Protocol of 1925, which specifically prohibited the use of biological or chemical weapons being used in warfare. Not that that wasn't an issue again with the use of mustard gas, mustard gas on soldiers. Cough, cough, you know. Shido created Unit 731 in 1936, which was also known as the Manchu Detachment 731, and was part of the Japanese Imperial Army Improved Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory Centers, and it was fronted as a water treatment facility or water supply department um, to the public, along with its sister facilities throughout other Chinese cities. A ton of horrible shit happened to upwards of 400,000 people, some accounts say, because of Unit 731, and this is why I put this at the end of this list of shitty human experiments. At first, the facilities were at Togo Unit and were then moved to Harbin before being finally moved to Pingfan. After 1939, Unit 731 really amped up its experimentation and field trials of its biological weapons on humans. In 1940, during an early fall morning, airplanes from 731 dropped bombs containing strips of cotton, grain, and plague-infected fleas on the streets and citizens of Ningbo, China. In just four days, the first person was dead. Between October and December, 106 deaths were recorded in the town as a result of this field trial. Unit 731 continued using pathogens and bombing Chinese citizens, as well as Soviets, Americans, and others, until 1942 when they ended up killing 1,700 Japanese soldiers with cholera-infected pests. In 1945, they were back with new, more effective pottery bombs that would allow the fleas and pests to survive the impact and heat of a higher-range drop. After this, they apparently started collecting rats and infecting mass numbers of fleas and rats with the plague. Plague bombs weren't the only terrible things going on at at Unit 731. Women were victims here too, as well, um, of sexual abuse and often forced to become pregnant so that the researchers could test the vertical transmission of diseases. So not only were they forced to succumb to a disease, but raped and forced to carry a baby that would also suffer from the disease as well. Awesome. Other prisoners of the unit were given diseases also, and they were often vivisected. That's right, a live dissection. Because women got pregnant and gave birth within the unit, there were children here as well. By the end of it all, it was reported that around 10,000 people died at the hands of Unit 731 and its sister facilities. However, many believe this number to be reduced to protect public image. Bless you.
After World War II was over, U.S. intelligence made a deal with the Japanese army officials responsible for the war crimes committed at Unit 731. Fucking Americans. In exchange for the research information on biological warfare at the unit, they all were to be pardoned, with the exception of one Japanese official who received a sentence of, I think, like 10 years imprisonment. Now, apparently one guy did end up killing himself before they were all pardoned. Uh, bummer? I don't know. Alright, this last one isn't really about a human experiment, but I think it still shows the depravity of humanity, and I wanted to wrap up by mentioning briefly the strange fuckery of human zoos. So people have been put on display for centuries, but entire populations of people? Did you know that was a thing? Some good old social Darwinism, or just blunt fucking racism. In 1874, Germany, um, Sami and Samoan people were displayed by Karl Hagenbach, who, two years later, also acquired Nubians as part of his touring human exhibitions. Another dude wanted in, and so he kidnapped Nubians and Inuit peoples and put them on display as well in 1877. Because the displays were so successful, they quickly became a popular social event, and soon after, human zoos made their way into the Parisian World Fair. Between 1878 and 1931, millions and millions of people had traveled from all over to view humans displayed in cages, sometimes completely nude, even if they had previously worn garments or clothing. In 1906, Otabanga came into the picture. Otabenga is a Congolese native born to the Mubuti Pygmy colony. His entire village was slaughtered while he was on an elephant hunt as a teenager, and Oda was captured and forced to work. After a few years, he was brought to America by a fellow named Samuel Phillips Werner, who gathered other native Africans as well to bring over to America for a display in St. Louis. Otabenga later worked at the Bronx Zoo helping the animals, but became a huge crowd hit as part of a monkey house exhibit um, with the monkeys and apes. He later was freed, uh, got formal training and a Western education, and worked in a tobacco factory to help pay for his way back home to Africa. Unfortunately, Otabenga was only 33 years old when he committed suicide. And this is why you don't display humans or treat anyone like they're less than you are or anyone else. Reading recommendations. So, of course, The Perversion of Knowledge, True Stories of Soviet Science by Dr. Vadim J. Bierstein. Now, the rest are articles that I have linked in here for you guys, and their titles are... Florida Dengue Fever Outbreak Leads Back to CIA and Army Experiments. Whoops. United States Responses to Japanese Wartime Inhuman Experimentation After World War II, National Security and Wartime Exigency. Warfare, 1934-2006. to 2006. Black Savannians Haunted by Memory of Mosquito Experiment, Georgia News, U.S. News, Kraft, U.S. News. Kraft versus Vanderbilt University. This one is a 
uh, abstract from the trial regarding Vanderbilt University. Secret deal between U.S. Fort Detrick Japanese Germ Warfare Unit revealed. Xinhua. Don't know if I'm saying that right. Xinhua, maybe? All right. And that's it for this episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Remember, if you are someone or you know someone who has a spooky story to share, whether it's alien-related, a case of deja vu, or other creepy shit, let us know. We'll feature it in an episode or invite you on as a guest. Brid the Bard gets lonely sometimes. Send us an email over at primordia.bwc at gmail.com. Wow, sorry, my mind literally shut down there for a second. Um, Or shoot us a message over on Facebook or Instagram, link in the podcast description. I really, really hope you all liked talking about the horrible shit that we humans have done to other humans under the guise of science. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. If you celebrate, happy holidays, happy Yule, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and all of the other ones, all of the things, uh, happy day of consumption, days of consumption. Thank you so much for listening. Stay strange.